verses 1 through 6, which is on page 1039 in the Pew Bible. Again, that's Ephesians 4, chapter, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. Therefore, the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with longsuffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, there is only one body and one spirit, just as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and one Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and you and all. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you are visiting with us again, we welcome you. Thank you so much for being with us. If you will, put your finger there in Ephesians 4. We're going to come back to that, but be turning to Matthew, the 13th chapter. Matthew, the 13th chapter. In just a moment, we'll be reading from there. It's supposed to be a true story. It's a smaller congregation, and traditionally, they usually hired young preachers right out of school because that was the only preachers that they could afford. And everybody knew that once that young preacher had a few years of experience, he would probably move on to another congregation. And, and that congregation felt uh, well with that. It was good. It was simply the cycle, if you will, of where they were and the way in which they could have a preacher. One particular preacher came in there straight out of school and he was on fire for God. He wanted to evangelize the whole community and he was making quite an effort and involved in so much in the community to bring people to Jesus Christ. And even in promoting uh, various ways that the congregation could be involved, it created quite a positive stir. One of the elders of that congregation was out visiting with another Lord's Church from another congregation one day. And that particular member of the congregation said to the elder, he said, I hear that your young minister over there is on fire, that he wants to evangelize the whole community. And the elder said, yeah, but give us two years, we can get him out of that. Now the sad thing was he wasn't kidding. You see, they had seen preacher after preacher come through their congregation that was so on fire to evangelize, and it would usually take a couple of the elders not wanting to win any souls to Christ bring down the seal in the life of not only the minister but even all the members of the congregation. This morning, I am so thankful to be a part of a congregation where the eldership is on fire for God. The eldership is not only concerned about the souls that are in this they're concerned about the souls in this community and even around the world. One of the things when John Thomas and I talked on the phone before moving to Mount Juliet, that was a matter of fact, the way that I learned about Juliet was John Thomas and I visiting on the phone. And he told me something one day that I don't remember a lot of our conversation, but I remember this. He said, now we have a stateside mission trip that uh, we're going on this summer. And he said, all going on that mission trip. And he kept talking. I said, wait a minute, John, go back and tell me that again. And he said it again. I thought, wow, 
What a congregation. Where the eldership is so committed to evangelism that they're taking time off work and being involved in it not only through making decisions of financial support, but hand-on support. Friends, when we think about evangelism, we think about a topic important. It is a topic that many congregations... When churches were surveyed what they believed that the purpose of the church was, 85% said they believed the purpose of the church was to fulfill their personal needs. Only 15% of the people believed that the purpose of the church was to reach out and convert the lost, or evangelism. Yes, we ought to be concerned about each other's needs and fulfilling each other's needs, and for that reason, I wouldn't suggest to you that the church only has one purpose. I believe that we look in the Scriptures and we find many purposes for the church. We're here to glorify God. We're here to worship God. We're here to serve God. We're here to fulfill the second greatest commandment. But friends, we're also here to fulfill the great commission to go out into all the world. And right here in Mount Juliet is part of the world. And as we think about this lesson that perhaps will be a two or three part series lesson, let's think about what God would have a congregation to look like. What would be the model of God's church if this church was concerned about evangelism? First, let's look at a few parables in Matthew the 13th chapter. In Matthew the 13th chapter, let's read verse 31 and 32. A very short parable teaches us about the kingdom of heaven or the church. In Matthew 13, 31, he says, Another parable he put forth them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took, and he sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. The church is like what? The kingdom of heaven is like what? It's like a mustard seed. Now, Many of you have heard me refer to a mustard seed being so small that several mustard seeds could be placed on your thumbnail. Just the other day when our family was in the state park, we went into the little gift shop that's in the state park, and they had there in cellophane a little mustard seed. And now I wish I would have bought it. But I couldn't help but, but to think of the many times I said a mustard seed, several of them could be placed on your thumbnail. And I took that cellophane and, and I placed it over my thumbnail and... Five or six mustard seeds at least could have been placed on top of the thumbnail. Tiny, tiny seed. Grown of the herbs is so such a stout bush or tree, if you will, that a bird could fly by and light in its branches, perhaps even build a nest in its branches. Lord, what do you want us to learn about the church? You've said it's like a mustard seed. He said, growth that takes place. The church is going to begin very small, but one of the characteristics of the church is that it is a living organism, and it is to be growing. We know that something's wrong if a child is born, but yet immediately it begins to grow, but then it ceases to grow, and it doesn't develop. Something's wrong with a church if is we're just a group of people that come together, but yet there's no life, there's no growth in that church. It began on Acts the second chapter, and 3,000 souls responded to the Lord's invitation. And although that may seem like a lot of people, that started out very small. 
And what we read when we read throughout Acts is we read about the multitudes being converted. We even come to Acts the 8th chapter because at first it was just in Jerusalem. Acts the 8th chapter because of the persecution we see that the believers took and left Jerusalem and took the gospel with them and preached it wherever they went. And they preached it throughout Judea and throughout Samaria. What's happening? Just as Jesus said it would happen, the church is to grow. And we could unfold a map of Paul's day and he could lay his hand over that map and talk about how the church is grown. He could be an eyewitness to say, I've seen the church grow here and all the way over to Rome, all the way back to Jerusalem. Just in a few short years, there was tremendous growth. Why? That is the way God intended for the church to be. Have you ever heard pessimistic people refer to a church growing and them say, you know, I hear the so-and-so congregation over there is really growing. They must be doing something wrong. I've heard that. I've heard individuals refer that if, if a church is growing, and they usually say in this day and time, well, if a church is growing in this day and time, they must be doing something wrong. Friends, God designed the church to grow. We're probably doing something wrong if we're not growing. Now, we could ask the question, is it a sin to not grow? We can't say yes or no to that. It's God who gives the increase, but we can know this. It is a sin if a congregation does not care whether or not it grows. Every congregation of the Lord's people is concerned about their neighbors. They're wanting to reach the lost in their community and even around the world with the saving gospel, Romans 1 and 16. Let's read another parable here. We see from the first parable that the Lord intended for the church to grow. That's a characteristic of the church. Matthew the 13th chapter, verse 33. Another parable he spoke to them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures a meal, till it was all leaven. Now, we could take a lump of dough and we could place it in a bowl just underneath the cabinet with an envelope of yeast, and you could leave it in there all day and nothing would You could leave it in there for quite some time and nothing would change. Why? Because the yeast has not made contact with the dough. You can take and place the yeast and mix it into the dough. Just a little yeast will leaven, if you will, the whole lump. And you leave it in the bowl there and you come back a few hours later and it has just grown, if you will. It's risen. It's grown in that bowl. What's the Lord teaching us here when He says that the kingdom of heaven is like that little leaven? If the church is to grow, it's by taking people out of the world and bringing them into the church. But how's that going to take place? Contact. We have to be individuals that go out into the world and rub shoulders and make contact and build relationships with individuals to teach them about Jesus Christ so that they will be baptized into Christ, and Christ's body is the church. So we see that the Lord, from the first parable, intended for the church to grow, and number two, from the second parable, He intended for the church to grow by members of the church making contact with those that are out in the world. It's a challenge to be in the world, but not of the world. But you know what else? According to this parable, it's a blessing. It's an opportunity for you and I. Think for just a moment. God perhaps placed you in the 
work that you are in because there's someone in that workplace that needs to know a Christian so that they can come to know Jesus Christ. Have you bought a house recently? Maybe God has placed you on the street you're on because there's neighbors there that need to see a Christian influence on a day-to-day basis so that you can be the influence that helps bring them to Jesus Christ. Friends, I need to realize that if I am a Christian, I am a part of God's plan people that are in my life, my influence, my invitations, and perhaps even my teaching. Now as we think about growth, turn with me, if you will, back to Ephesians, the fourth chapter. A tremendous chapter to study as we talk about growth. Wednesday night, as we gathered in the simulcast area during the Summer Faith Series, and we talked about reaching out to our friends, we put some very practical points to Ephesians, the fourth chapter. And now, today, we will go back and we will look at Ephesians, the fourth chapter, seeing what the text teaches about specific responsibilities that we have You see, as we had so capably read for us a few minutes ago, our text is in a bigger picture, if you will, leading all the way down to verse 16. To pick up in the middle of a sentence and read verse 16 for just a moment. Ephesians, the fourth chapter, in verse 16, he says, And from, from whom the whole body, that's the church, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part, that's the members, every part, does its share, here's the phrase, called growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. He writes for 15 verses here, and he talks about our talks about our teaching, our doctrine, he talks about the leadership, and he talks about the growth and the maturity that we all should go through. And then he summarizes it by saying, now one member is knitted together. They're working effectively. You pull your part of the load, and I'll pull my part of the load, and they'll pull their part of the load. And we're all working together to glorify God. He says, that is what causes the church to grow. It's good to do the very best that we can do any time we set out to do something. So when individuals say, let's reach out to our community, it's good to know, well, who's our community? An older population, a younger population, population in economic class, uh, what level of education means with certain methods to reach them more effectively. So that's fine. But you know, one of the things that I'm afraid we overlook too often, in 16 verses that the Lord talks about reaching out to our community for the church to grow, instead of Him saying, I want us to concentrate on the community, He says, I want you to concentrate on you. What's your attitude? you believe? What kind of leaders do you have? What kind of growth and maturity have you exemplified? You see, the Lord is telling us that if we get, and I'm talking about our own, our own life when I use this expression, if we get our house in order, then we can help get the church where it ought to be. 
And when we are who we ought to be, we will be a shining light to the community that says, I'm attracted to those people. I like what I see. I like who they are. They're genuine. They love one another. They love God. They love the community. I want to know what causes them to be like that. Fourth chapter, let's get this first point. We have had read for us out of the first two verses, two verses in Ephesians 4 that deal with our attitude. Notice Paul is writing from prison as he says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. His urge is for us to consider how much did it cost to purchase us into Christianity? And when we consider what it cost for us to become... We live with a greater dedication to that life itself. Because keep in mind, who we really are is by the world about us. I want to tell you something. If you're a hypocritical Christian, odds are people out in the world know that better than we know it in this room. And that's even a greater damage to the reputation of Jesus Christ. So it's interesting, as he begins this passage about church growth, if you will, he begins by saying, do you remember what it cost for you to become a Christian? Walk worthy, worth, walk worthy of the calling by which you were called. Help us realize and illustrate it. Have you ever been into a place, a retail business, and maybe you were just checking out, or maybe you needed a little bit of help. And the whole time you were trying to go through this transaction or trying to get this help, the same person was on the phone, a personal phone call, just chatting away. And they do this old number. That's $5.32. Yeah, yeah, and yesterday we went here and all that. How many of you have the feeling when that's going on that says, you know, if you're getting paid to do this job, as a customer, I deserve for you to do the job. You see, when we have that feeling of, hey, something's wrong with this scenario, what we're saying is, now if you're not getting a paycheck, if this is not a salary uh, position here, it's fine. Do however. But if you're getting paid to do the job, let's do the job. Paul, help us learn something about church growth. He says, first, we need members of the Lord's church that realize what it costs for them to be a Christian. Jesus Christ had to spread His arms and He had to die on the cross. It cost the blood. It cost the sacrificial lamb. That is the only hope that any of us have to be the children of God. And so Paul says, let's remember what it costs. Now, worthy of the calling by which you were called. The only hope that we have to be a Christian is because Jesus Christ died for us. Now let's prove it. Something's wrong with an individual when you find them out in the middle of the worldly entertainment on Friday night, but yet on Sunday they say they're a Christian. No, they're not. They have forgotten what it costs for them to be a Christian. They go out and they conduct business Monday through Friday in an unethical manner. They're not Christians, not faithful Christians, not dedicated. They have forgot the calling. They were called to live a faithful life. And enough was paid that we ought to be willing to do so. So it is in this setting that he deals with our attitude as he says, I'm a prisoner. And I want to remind you some things about your attitude. You know, you just almost have to laugh under 
I mean, how many of us say, Whoa, I need a vacation. This guy was out pounding the streets, preaching day and night, going into individuals' homes with them and even shedding tears with them day and night, he says in Ephesus. He would be in prison. Sure, it was a good time to get a little break. Paul, take a breather. Oh no, I've got some epistles to write. And from the to the back pew and everywhere in between, everybody in a congregation realizes it stops here. My responsibility to live a Christian life and to be concerned about the lost in my life. It's not the task of the elders only. It's not a where we say, well, that's what ministers are for. We pay them for that. It's not that we say, well, that's just this one group over here. It's just it's just the old. That, well, that's just a, a very timely time. But no, every faithful Christian is concerned about souls. The buck stops here. I need to be prayerful. I need to be looking around and find out who's visiting that I could encourage. Who is it that lives on my street that I could encourage? Who is it at the workplace or at school that's discouraged and that's Christ-like to befriend them? Paul says, I'm a prisoner. In other words, almost as if to say, you don't take from being concerned about souls. What does he say about the attitude? He says four things in verse 2. He says, well, to have lowliness, humility. It's so attractive. That's what draws people. People visit here on a Sunday. Do they leave? Well, our visitors this morning leave, and bear with us, visitors, as we make a personal point here. As visitors leave here this morning, are they going to walk out of this place, and are they going to say, those are some arrogant or feel welcomed by humble individuals. Do you like spending the time around arrogant people or humble individuals? Do you like spending time around individuals that serve themselves and them only? Or do you like being around people to wash other people's feet? He begins six verses of what causes the church to grow. The first attitude humility. Secondly, sometimes we confuse gentleness or meekness with, with a type of weakness. We think that it's anything. And friends, that's far from the case. If we could ask Pharaoh, Pharaoh was most leader. He would not say he was weak. Instead, he would talk about how he courageously stood before him and spoke the message of God and ended up leading the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But yet, Numbers 12, he says that Moses was the his day. Friends, meekness is God-controlled. There's nothing weak about that. It's full submission to say, God, here I am, send me. As Isaiah would say in Isaiah the 6th chapter, after he entered into a scene of worship. The third thing that we see here, is that He calls us to be long-suffering. Here we are, a body of people 
this particular congregation, several hundred. What do people see? Do they see a congregation of people that are following God and long-suffering with one another? Let's put it this way. Maybe this would better help you to think what I'm thinking right now as we study this passage to find an application. When thinking about uh, premarital counseling, I oftentimes will say to, to couples that and it just seems like and yet on the other hand we have a couple here that that, that had to describe that's what you would say you'd say they fight a lot what's the difference in these two couples does this couple over here never have any disagreements do they always think no this couple over here Married 40 or 50 years, I can. The difference is, they know how to resolve. Resolve conflict. Have you ever seen congregation? It just seemed like there was a lot of peace. A lot of love in that congregation. And yet on the other hand, there's a congregation over here, it just seems like that they are always bickering about something. Does this congregation, all of them always agree on everything, all the time? No. In areas of doctrine, this congregation will agree with Christ. And areas of judgment, this congregation will submit to the elders. And areas of personal conflict, this congregation will go back to Matthew 18. And they'll resolve differences among themselves. And in all things, they'll practice long-suffering. Friends, what we're talking about right now cannot be overemphasized. The world is a congregation that's willing to love and forgive and go on. And they quickly identify a congregation that does not do that. And you better believe when they're sitting out in their living room and they're thinking what church we're going to visit next Sunday, there is nothing attractive about visiting a congregation that fights and bickers with each other. Full of strife and into a congregation that is the same way. What's the answer? The answer, let's transpose the words here. The answer is to suffer long. Are we going to hurt each other? Sometime on purpose and sometimes not. But you can rest assured, if you stay around this congregation long enough, somebody is going to hurt you. What are you going to show the community?
we have a fault with our brother to go and to sit down with them and resolve it. And if the two of us can't resolve it, we bring others in. Not so we can pick sides. We can sit down. We all love each other. We all love God more than we love ourselves. And so we sit down simply to find a resolution. Oh, how many times have you heard a small group sit down to worship and they say, well, you does say we're... It does say that, but you know the setting it says that? That's out of context. The setting it says doing more together to set down, to resolve differences, to give God the glory. He says, you can rest assured I'll be in the middle of that gathering. God blesses conflict resolution where Christians are setting down to find a solution that glorifies God. And sometimes that means we have to suffer long. Isn't it interesting that in a chapter on church growth, he talks to us about how to deal with each other when we hurt each other. Finally, in verse 4, I mean, fourth chapter, verse 2, he says, and bearing with one another in love. The word study on this, to bear with, literally means to shoulder up underneath the load. We all have burdens at times that's just too heavy to bear alone. We were not saved to walk this way alone. Even in the prayer, it was mentioned, the fact that we're not here alone. God is on our side, and God's people are on our side. And there's times where, out of humility, we have to admit, I can't do it alone. I need some encouragement. I need some help. I need some extra hands. I need somebody to wash my feet sometime. And pride causes us to say, I don't need anybody. And God says, teaching us here, no, we do need to bear with one another. Let's close with an old story that I've heard several times, but wow, does it make the point of bearing with others. How does the world about us see how we deal with others? It's a small congregation across the street from a college campus, and they had their traditional service, if you will, not meaning that bad, just what it was. One particular Sunday night, the building was about full, and a young man came in during the third song of the Sunday evening. It was quickly identified that he had never visited there before and didn't know anything about the Christian culture. He came in with his big bell buttons on and a t-shirt and jewelry everywhere and long hair. And as he walked in, he just kind of moseyed down and didn't find a convenient seat, so he just sat down in the middle aisle right next to the front row. People kind of glanced around, thinking that to be unusual. And then what they saw next made everybody uneasy. The oldest gentleman in the house, he was in his 80s. He raised up on his cane, and during that third song, he began walking down the aisle. People knew he was probably going to rebuke the young man for being disrespectful, sitting in the floor. They began to reason in their mind how they wished he wouldn't do that, or maybe he should do that, or hopefully he'll handle it tactfully. About the time the song ended, the old man made his way right beside the young man. 
Will he poke him with the cane? Nudge him with his foot? Close both hands on top of that cane and he began to squat. Just as his body found the floor beside him, he put his arms around him, and by that time the song was over and everybody could hear the old fellow whisper, Glad to have you tonight, son. And they both sat there for the rest of the service. What does it mean to bear with one another? If my idea is bearing with one another to make them exactly like me, I've missed the whole concept. Bearing with one another means to help them where they are to take one step closer to God. Let's bear with one another, whether we're brothers and sisters or whether it's a stranger out on the street. What can I do this week to help them take one step closer to God? It's not my place to solve everybody's problems and to fix everybody, but it is my place to bear with one another. This morning, what's your attitude? Friends, out of all the places God would start, is in Ephesians 4 to talk about church growth, He starts with attitude. The buck stops here. Am I willing to bear with one another? This morning, here's the good news. There's a God that is long-suffering. He's given you this point in your life. Your life hasn't been taken up to this point. The Lord hasn't returned up to this point. He has suffered long with you and He's given you up to this point to make your relationship right with Him. Don't test the long-suffering of God. For one day, it will expire but you have today. If your life isn't right with God, won't you make it right with God? If you've never been baptized into Christ for the remission of sins, won't you do that this morning? Or if you've done that, but yet along the way you've strayed and you've left Him, how wonderful it is to be in a congregation that I honestly believe, and I tell people at other places, I describe this congregation as a forgiving congregation. You're in the midst of people that have been forgiven and love to forgive. If you need to make your life right this morning, it's not going to be pointed fingers. It's going to be open arms to welcome you home. If we can help you, come as we stand, as we sing.